Our first reading is Job chapter 1, verses 1, 2 and 10. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. We now go to verse 10. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. We now go to Job 42. Is that right, John? Isn't it? Yeah. 42 verses 1 to 17. Then Job replied to the Lord, You know that I, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is that? Obscures my counsel without knowledge. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Terminite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bilead the Shuite and Zophar the Namanite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kezia and the third Karen Hapmunch. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died an old man and full of years. And now we turn to James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is with, for the autumn and spring rains? You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned.
for those scripture readings. Our, um, our text for this morning comes from that last reading in James and it's James chapter 5 verse 11b where it says, You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And as I said at the start of the service, the title of this sermon is called When the Going Gets Tough. It's the middle of World War II. A baby girl is born into a deeply religious family. Her mother has all the gifts and graces of a mature Christian woman. Her father is a hypocrite. He has affairs with different women and when his daughter is a teenager, he divorces his wife. In her 20s, the daughter becomes a nurse and gets married. For many years, the marriage seems happy and all goes well. But then her husband also proves to be unfaithful. He too has affairs with other women and the marriage ends in divorce. His wife is left with the lion's share of raising their three children. But their lives aren't easy either. The one daughter is severely disabled. She has a condition so rare that it's never properly diagnosed. The son has mental health issues and as a young adult he is diagnosed with schizophrenia. When the other daughter reaches adulthood, she attends a prestigious university. But while she is there, she is raped by another student. When her mother, the nurse, is asked about her faith in such trying circumstances, her answer is very down to earth. Why should I kick God out of my life just because things are difficult? Another scenario. A middle-aged couple has nine children. While the children are still quite young, the mother is diagnosed with cancer. Throughout it all, the father stays remarkably calm and has unwavering faith. He tells himself and others, God is good and he won't let me raise nine children on my own. And so it was. His wife became a cancer survivor and together they raised their nine children. But they weren't out of the woods yet. When one of their sons turned 18, he bought a motorbike. And you guessed it. On the way home from work one Friday evening, he was hit by a truck. He suffered horrendous chest wounds and died instantly. Later that night, their minister was with the family at the morgue. He asked the parents what they would like him to preach on at their son's funeral. The father thought for a moment and then he said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. He paused for a moment and then he remembered the rest of the verse. May the name of the Lord be praised. The minister looked across to the wife and asked if she would be happy with that verse as a sermon text and she said yes. 
in the face of great tragedy, these parents could sincerely echo the words of Job. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the, lame, may the name of the Lord be praised. And we find that in Job 1.22. Job may have lived 4,000 years ago, but he's still with us today. Many people can still identify with the sufferings of this Old Testament saint. There are Job's all around us. Maybe you're one of them. In fact, the older I get, the more I realise that there are very few people who don't identify in some way with the story of Job. None of us is immune from hardship, suffering and distress. So what can we learn from the story of Job? What's the take-home message of this remarkable book? What are the basic lessons it teaches? What is its bottom line when it comes to application? to Christians today. For that I want to take you to the only verse where Job is mentioned by name in the New Testament and that is in our text in James 5.11. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. If nothing else, this is the very least that we should take away from the book of Job. This is how the New Testament summarises its message. This is James's take on Job and he wants it to be our take as well. Essentially, James says three things about the book of Job. A, you've heard of Job's perseverance. B, you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. And C, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And I'd also like these to be the three points of the sermon today. You've heard of Job's perseverance, the perseverance of Job. You've seen what the Lord finally brought about, the purpose of the Lord. And the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, the Lord's person. So the second part of James 5.11 is really the preacher's dream text. It's three points and they all begin with the letter P. The perseverance of Job, the purpose of the Lord and the person of the Lord. If we get nothing else out of the book of Job, we should at least get these three points. So let's begin where James begins and that's with the perseverance of Job. You've heard of Job's perseverance, he said. Yes, we have. We've just read about it. But what is it supposed to mean? Let me begin by saying what it doesn't mean. I don't want to sound picky, but this is not about the patience of Job. We often think of Job as a model of patience. I once heard of a missionary to Japan who was home on furlough and he was asked about how he was going with the Japanese language. He gave a memorable reply. He said that learning Japanese takes the patience of Job, the wisdom of Solomon and the age of Methuselah. You see, the patience of Job has become proverbial. 
and it's actually come into the English language through the translation of our text in the King James Bible. It says, Ye have heard of the patience of Job. And the phrase is stuck. But James doesn't say, You've heard of the patience of Job. He says, You've heard of the perseverance of Job. And the NIV is spot on here. It's not about patience. It's about perseverance. When you think about it, Job wasn't all that patient. He wasn't patient with his circumstances. He wasn't patient with his friends. He wasn't even all that patient with God. Let me give you some examples. When Job's three friends came to see him, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. They didn't say a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very great. Finally, Job himself breaks the silence. Listen to what he says. This is how he starts out. May the day of my birth perish and the night it was said a boy is born. That day. May it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? And these verses come from chapter 3 in Job. They're hardly the words of a patient man. Well, think of how he lashes out as his friends when they have all had a turn to speak. I've heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? But some of his choicest words are directed against God. Listen to how he argues with God in chapter 7. I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offences and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. But Job's not finished yet. In chapter 30 he continues his complaint against God. 
I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. So I put it to you, Job wasn't always patient. One of the commentators goes even further and says he was anything but an example of a godly person who was patient in the midst of adversity. He was impatient with his circumstances. He was impatient with his friends and he was impatient with God. But if Job isn't patient, what's so good about him? Why does James hold him up as such a glowing example? The answer's simple. Job may not have been patient, but he did persevere. He was steadfast. He endured. He managed to hang in there and he never walked away from God. In fact, even the book of Job gives him very high marks. At the beginning of the story, Job is introduced as blameless and upright, a man who feared God and shunned evil. It says so three times. At the end of each of the terrible tests that came his way, we are first told that Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing and that Job did not sin in what he said. Then in the very last chapter of the book, God finally addresses Job's three friends. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And he says it not once but twice. Did that ever strike you? It never struck me as much as when I was preparing this sermon. God says about Job, he has spoken of me what is right. And to make sure that Job's three friends got the point, the Lord says it again. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. This is remarkable. Job questioned God. Job complained about God. Job argued with God. You could even say that Job got angry with God. But in the end, God says... Job has spoken of me what is right. Isn't it amazing what Job gets away with? You see, God has very broad shoulders. I once found some great pastoral advice in a very unlikely place. A generation ago, there was no one in Western society who challenged the taboos about death more than the Swiss doctor Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was an agnostic but in her book on death and dying she gives grieving Christians some wise advice. Get angry with God. He can take it. Well if the book of Job is anything to go by she was right. Job questioned. He complained. He argued. He got angry. But there was also a line that he never crossed. He never cursed God. He never blamed God. 
He never charged God with wrongdoing. The theologian William Barclay put it like this, the very greatness of Job lies in the fact that in spite of everything that tore at his heart, he never lost his grip on faith and his grip on God. Job's faith is no grovelling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. To put it simply, Job persevered. He never let go of God, he stuck with it. And if Job-like trials come our way, that's all God expects of us. Don't give up. Hang in there. When the going gets tough, the saints persevere. The nurse who was left to raise her three children didn't give up. She's one of the most gentle, wise and mature Christians that I have ever met. The parents who lost their son in the motorbike accident didn't give up. Their son died on a Friday night. In church the following Sunday morning, they joined right in singing the opening hymn. The loving kindness of my God is more than life to me. So I will bless thee while I live and lift my prayer to thee. So that's the first lesson to take home from Job. He left us as an example of perseverance and down the ages many have followed it. But if the first lesson is the perseverance of Job, the second is the purpose of the Lord. Here we come to our second P. The first point to notice here that there is a purpose in our sufferings. The celebrity atheist Richard Dawkins recently did a documentary aiming to show that all religions are just so much nonsense. At one point he visits the American state of Oklahoma where he interviews a Catholic priest. The scene where the interview takes place is one of utter devastation. A tornado has just ripped through the town where the priest serves. As you can imagine, the place lies almost completely in ruins. But mysteriously, here and there you see a house that has stayed completely intact. The local Catholic church has just the front wall remaining and a cross can still be seen at the top. Dawkins asks the priest how he copes. The priest throws his hands in the air. I know God has a purpose in this. That's all I can say. Later when Dawkins reviews the footage, he of course takes exception to the priest's answer. There is no purpose in devastation like this, he says. Any tornado happens purely because of natural forces. It all happens by chance. But the priest was right. When tragedies come a believer's way, they have a purpose. They don't just happen by chance. Job's troubles didn't happen by chance. They had a purpose. 
When difficulties come our way, they don't happen by chance either. They serve a purpose. They serve a divine purpose. But what is that purpose? That's the big question, isn't it? In the Christian life, what is the purpose of suffering? Why did Job suffer all that he did? Why does a single mother have three children all with big challenges in their lives? Wasn't she already suffering enough? Why does a couple who've lived through cancer both survive to live through the death of their teenage son? Could Dawkins be right? Don't all these things just happen by blind chance? Or could there be a purpose behind it all? If God does have a purpose, what is it? We need to answer this question at two levels. When we read Job and James carefully, we will notice that God has an immediate purpose and an ultimate purpose and that the two really dovetail into one another. Let's begin with the ultimate purpose first. James says, You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. And what did the Lord bring about? We read about it in Job 42, the last chapter in the book. God restored Job's fortunes. He ends up with twice as many sheep, oxen, camels and donkeys as he had before. He's also blessed with a new family. Seven sons and three daughters replace the ones who died so tragically at the beginning of the book. And the three daughters are just drop-dead gorgeous. The Bible tells us that nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. They must have been stunning. But what's the message in all of this for us? At the end of every bout of suffering, does God promise us a handful of goodies? You lose your house in a bushfire, but you end up with a bigger and a better one. You lose heavily on the stock market, but it bounces back and you're better off than before. You undergo major surgery, but you recover and now you're fitter and healthier than you've ever been. Is that how it works? Does Job play into the hands of some health and wealth theology? Well, that's not how James sees it. He mentions Job in the context of the second coming. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming, he says. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Job persevered till his fortunes were restored. We're to persevere till the Lord returns. In the meantime, God may give us some relief from our sufferings, but that's not what he promises. What he promises is something far better, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, a restored universe where sin and death will be no more. That's what our sufferings are preparing us for. God's shaping us for a world where there is no cancer, no schizophrenia, no cerebral palsy, no motorbike accidents, no mourning, no crying, no pain. 
because every tear will be wiped away. So that's the ultimate purpose of suffering. God uses it to prepare us for a better world where suffering will be no more. So we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But suffering also serves a more immediate purpose. This is what James has in mind right at the beginning of his letter. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Yes, we're to be like Job and persevere to the end. But in the meantime, perseverance yields some remarkable results that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, there's a reason for suffering and that is to produce believers who are mature and complete. And that explains so much in life, not just the major tragedies, but also the everyday difficulties that come our way. Why did your baby keep you awake for most of the night yet again? Why did your computer decide to crash just when you could least afford it? Why did that careless driver run into the back of you at a traffic light and give you all those hassles with panel beating, repair bills and insurance claims? Why did trials like this come our way? James tells right at the beginning of this letter it's so that we may become mature and complete. What if there were no suffering in this sinful world? What if there were no suffering in our lives? What would we be like? The British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge once put it like this, perhaps somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I'd almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. So God has at least two purposes in our sufferings. They don't just come out of the blue and hit us by chance. They have an immediate and an ultimate purpose. They're designed to make us mature Christians and to prepare us for glory. The nurse who was left to raise three children seemed to have a favourite prayer and it's one that we should all learn to pray. Lord, make us better people. Through our sufferings, the Lord answers that prayer and one day he will make us perfect. But James not only reflects on the perseverance of Job and on the purpose of the Lord, he makes one more point. Here we come to our third P. He also reflects on the person of the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now I must confess that I had very often read these words before. I'd even learned this verse off by heart. 
but only recently did it really strike me and it hit me right between the eyes. I read this verse after once again working my way through the book of Job. Now some people have come away from reading the book of Job with the impression that God is cruel. He seems to use Job as a pawn in some kind of supernatural game. Others think that God is cold. He just doesn't seem all that concerned about what Job is going through. I must say that's never (coughs) how I read Job. I came away with the strong message that God is sovereign. No matter what comes our way, God is in control, he's in charge and he will work it all out in the end. In the meantime, just hang in there. You knuckle down and trust him as best you can. Now there's truth in that. God is in control and he will work things out. But if that's where we stop, we haven't seen the whole picture and we'll just become stoics when it comes to suffering. We'll just grit our teeth, we'll grin and bear it. But the book of Job doesn't just teach that God is sovereign. It teaches that God's very compassionate and merciful. That's how James wants us to read the book of Job. That's how James wants us to see God in the book of Job. For James, that's the bottom line. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that profoundly challenging. That would not be my first thought after reading Job. That God is powerful? Yes. That God is almighty? Yes. That God is in control? Yes. But that God is compassionate and merciful? That was never the first thought that crossed my mind. At the end of the story I'm prepared to let God be God and so I should. But what kind of a God is he? He is very compassionate and merciful. But how is God compassionate and merciful? Recently my wife and I were discussing this question with some friends. We all agreed that God was very compassionate and merciful to Job at the end of the book. In chapter 42 he restores Job's fortunes. He even forgives Job's friends. No doubt about God's compassion and mercy at the end. But the more we talked and the more we thought about it, the more we came to see that you can't limit God's compassion and mercy to the last chapter of the book. It will hardly do to say that in a book of 42 chapters... God is compassionate and merciful in just one of those chapters. He's pretty cold and aloof the rest of the time but at least he comes through in the end. That's hardly the way to read one of the, oldest book, the longest books in the Old Testament. So here's the point, the very challenging point that James makes. God is very compassionate and merciful not only at the end of the book of Job God is also very compassionate and merciful throughout the book of Job. Let's think this through for a moment. Is God compassionate and merciful because Job perseveres or does Job persevere because God is compassionate and merciful? And again, 
Is God compassionate and merciful because he has a purpose? Or does God have a purpose because he is compassionate and merciful? You see, God's compassion and mercy undergird everything else. Because God is very compassionate and merciful, Job perseveres and God has a purpose for his suffering. God is compassionate and merciful, not only after Job's suffering, but even in the midst of Job's suffering. Now let's take that one step further. God's compassion and mercy also undergird us in our suffering. We persevere and there's a purpose in our suffering because God is very compassionate and merciful. He doesn't just reward us with his compassion and mercy when we, are, when we end well. His compassion and mercy are there all along. His compassion and mercy were there when that mother gave birth to a very disabled child. His compassion and mercy were there when that teenager died in a motorbike accident. And as Christians we know that even better than Job did. We know what God is like because of Jesus. Time and again in Jesus' ministry we read and he had compassion on them and he had compassion on them. Whether it was hungry crowds or a blind beggar or the father of an epileptic boy, Jesus had compassion on them. And that Jesus is still with his people today. Because of Jesus, God never leaves us or forsakes us. As one of our old liturgical forms used to say, he was forsaken by God that we might nevermore be forsaken by him. And I actually looked, looked up in the dictionary the word forsaken for those younger people means abandoned and or forgotten. So let's remember that. Job might have felt forsaken. Sometimes we might feel forsaken. But the only one who was ever really forsaken by God was Jesus when he died on the cross. And if Jesus died for us, then we will persevere and our suffering does have a purpose. Nothing happens to us by chance. No suffering that the believer goes through, no matter how bad, is just a stroke of bad luck or a bolt out of the blue. In the midst of it all, God is still very compassionate and merciful. I'll be the first to admit, it's not always easy to see things that way. It's not easy to read Job that way and it's not easy to see our own sufferings that way. As the Bible says, now we see through a glass darkly, but one day it will all be crystal clear. One day we will share James's perspective completely. When we get to glory and look back, we will all say, yes, the Lord was very compassionate and merciful. The mother who gave birth to that severely disabled baby will say, the Lord was very compassionate and merciful. The parents of the teenager who died in the motorbike accident will say, the Lord 
was very compassionate and merciful. So what will stay with us from this message in the book of Job? This is where James is such a big help. When suffering comes your way, you remember a very simple message, those three Ps. The perseverance of Job, the purpose of the Lord and the person of the Lord. When adversity strikes, here is the bottom line. Persevere. Know that God has a purpose and remember that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this message that you've given to us this morning and Lord, as we read again through the book of Job and listen to those words from James. Father God, we can reflect on many circumstances in our own life which are similar. And we pray, Lord, that in all circumstances you may allow us to persevere And we pray, Lord, that we may do that because your spirit is with us at all times. And Lord, we pray too that you may be with us and help us in understanding your purpose and also, Lord, in understanding how compassionate and merciful you are as a God. Lord God, we pray that you may bless us as We leave here this morning, we pray for your hand of grace over us. In Jesus' name, Amen.